0: Let's get started with a word of prayer, if we could. Our Father, we do come before you this morning and ask you to still our hearts and our minds that we might focus on your scripture, that you might teach us from your word uh, new truths, things that we haven't previously understood. Or Lord, if we have understood them, I pray that you would deepen our understanding of them. We thank you for the words that Ezekiel wrote, even though they're ancient, they're very pertinent to what we see in the world today. Pray that you would guide this discussion, that it might be pleasing to you, and that you might be given all glory and honor. For we pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, the, the last time we were together, <clears throat> we kind of took a departure from the book of Ezekiel And we looked at all the instances, or at least almost all, the instances in Scripture where you have a a resurrection pictured. And we didn't do that just because it's a nice thing to do, although that's true. Uh, We did it really to enhance our understanding of Ezekiel 37 and the first prophecy that's given there about the Valley of Dry Bones. And so we've walked through that um, that vision that Ezekiel had, and while there are many who believe that that vision is not actually picturing something that's going to happen in the future, I don't agree with that. I believe that the, wor- uh, the vision given to Ezekiel by God is an indication of what he will do in the future, and it actually pictures, I believe, the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. If it's not that, then the resurrection of the Old Testament saints is not given anywhere in Scripture. It's not anywhere in the New Testament. You can go through all the things in Revelation, and the resurrection of the Old Testament saints is not pictured. The resurrection of uh, those who died during the tribulation, those who have died... Since Jesus Christ went to heaven, those are all pictured. But the the ones who aren't pictured are the saints who came before Jesus Christ. Um, nowhere in Scripture, other than Ezekiel 37, do you see the resurrection given in the details that were given here. Um, you do see a glimpse of it over in Daniel chapter 12, but it's just half a verse. And he doesn't go into the details that we've seen in Ezekiel 37. So, I don't know what those who, um, who don't believe this is actual, what they think about Old Testament saints, haven't ever read anything of where they say it's pictured in Scripture. Um, I guess they just presume it's true. Um, I mean, I certainly agree that there were a lot of Old Testament believers who will be in heaven with us. Um, but this is the only place that i found in Scripture where it's pictured. So we went through the seven accounts of resurrections to kind of see where Ezekiel fits into the order. And you remember um, Christ, the first fruits uh, of resurrection, um, when he died uh, and cried out and the veil was split from top to bottom, uh, the graves were open. And apparently many people came to life and went into Jerusalem and were seen by many. Um, And even though they resurrected before Jesus Christ, they are not the first fruits because Jesus Christ resurrected three days later and ascended to heaven. He's the first one to resurrect and go to heaven. So he is the first fruits. And then those who came alive uh, when he died are the first second picture of resurrection that we have in the New Testament Scriptures. And then we looked over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where you see the rapture of the church. And while the church is raptured, those who have died are come out of the graves and go to heaven before those who are still alive. So again, resurrection, going to heaven. <clears throat> that was the third picture of it. The fourth picture we saw was over in um, chapter 11 of Revelation where you have the two witnesses who had witnessed for three and a half years. They're killed by the Antichrist. They lie in the street for three days and then God resurrects them and calls them back up to heaven. And so you, that was the fourth picture that we had of resurrection. The fifth one comes in Revelation chapter 20 where you've got the tribulation saints who die, uh, those who place faith in Jesus Christ uh, during the tribulation and yet are martyred. Um, They're resurrected and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. So Revelation 20 is the fifth picture. I believe the sixth picture is what we see in Ezekiel 37, where you have the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. So when you get through with that, All the people who've ever placed faith in Jesus Christ are now alive in the millennial kingdom. And then the final resurrection is given again in Revelation chapter 20. It's not really a resurrection to life. It's a resurrection so they can be judged at the great white throne judgment, all those who've never placed faith in Jesus Christ, then thrown into the lake of fire. And so those are the seven instances of resurrection in the scriptures, you you could argue that there's another one or two where Jesus Christ raised someone from the dead um, after, you know, the little girl and the guy who was being carried um, on his way to be buried. Um, Jesus Christ resurrected both of those, but they again died a, a natural death. And so um, these are the ones, the resurrections that are significant that were to Um, eternal life are the ones that we've gone through. So those are the resurrections. And I believe Ezekiel, whether Ezekiel 37 happens before or after the tribulation saints are resurrected in Revelation chapter 20, we don't know. Uh, Do they happen at exact the same time? We don't know. But I would say they're in close proximity to each other because both of them are indicated at the beginning of the millennial reign. So somewhere in those first days of the reign of Jesus Christ on the earth, uh, the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints are both resurrected and are in the, <clears throat> the kingdom during the millennial reign. So that's kind of how we've laid out the first um, prophecy that's given in Ezekiel chapter 37, there are two more prophecies that are given in this chapter. <clears throat> the first one speaks to the reuniting of the Israeli kingdom, the, uh, the, the Israelites as 12 tribes. And so in order to understand um, exactly what's going on in this, this, pictured in this resurrection that goes from verse 11, no, verse 15, down to verse 23. That resurrection, uh, I mean, this prophecy, you have to know a little bit of Old Testament history, really. Um, of how the kingdom was divided and why it was divided. And so I will kind of want to walk through that. You'll find it back over in First Kings. And again, I, you'll, you'll have the references to this um, later this week, I hope. Um, but there, there's. I don't know if our understanding of why the Israelites were divided into two kingdoms is according to Scripture. We know there was a lot going on. We know that there were only three kings. There was King Saul and then King David And then King Solomon that reigned over all the 12 tribes. After that, the kingdom divides. And actually, um, during the life of Solomon, it began to divide. Um, And and so we'll see this um, as we look at this in detail. Over in 1 Kings uh, chapter 1... Before King David died, he made Solomon king of the 12 tribes. And he did it while one of his sons, Adonijai, was in revolt, really. He went out, he got together some soldiers... Um, and some, uh, a priest who was not the priest that David used, and he went out onto a mountain in the distance from Jerusalem and declared himself to be king. And David was about to die. David had not appointed anybody, anybody king, and so word of that came to David. Actually, Bathsheba is the one who came and told him. And um, so he appointed, had um, the high priest anoint Solomon as the king of Israel. And they were, you know, a great party. They were all rejoicing. Um, And the ones out on the hill could hear them. And so they were wondering what happened. And once they knew that Solomon had been appointed king, um, they were terrified because you, you don't oppose a king and you don't say you're the king when someone else was properly anointed as the king. And actually, it happens that, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a little bit of communication between um, the sons of David. That would be Solomon and um, his son uh, uh, Adana, Adonijah. Who was revolting against him. And then a simple statement in the scripture. Solomon sent someone to have his brother killed. And he was killed. And so that put down any revolt that could happen. So that's how Solomon begins his reign. Over uh, the Israelites. And then you you go on a little bit longer. And Solomon, uh, you you can just read it through 1 Kings. Solomon builds the temple that God gave David the blueprints to, supernaturally gave them to David, and David wrote them down. And then Solomon built that temple, and then he built his palace um, adjoining to the temple. And then he brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. And if you read his dedication that is given in 1 Kings, 1 um, You would think this guy is as good as his father, David, was. Um, He understood what God was doing. He gives praise to God. He thanks God for having established the kingdom. I mean, he does all the right things in that speech of dedication. And you would think Solomon is well on his way. That's chapters 6 through 9, and everything looks good. But then in chapter 11, Solomon turns away from God. And he has many, many wives from many um, um, other people groups. And so God sends some adversaries against Solomon. You have a guy named Hadad who is uh, Edomite. And you remember us talking about the Edomites back in chapter 35 where there was a special of Ezekiel. There's a special judgment reserved for the Edomites during the millennial kingdom. It'll burn all throughout that kingdom. Um, And you remember that Edom, the Edomites came from Esau. Jacob and Esau, um, Esau left because Jacob was the favored son and he went to the mountains Of Edom. And so the Edomites are his descendants. You remember the prophecy against Mount Seir, which is in the land of Edom, um, that God prophesied against in Ezekiel 37. And so these Edomites and this adversary against Solomon is just a continuation of what later will happen in Scripture, where the Edomites are always, always opposed. To the Israelites. Even, we saw it even in the, um, when Nebuchadnezzar overran Israel. And the Israelites tried to flee to Edom. That the Edomites pushed them back into their own land. So that they could be slaughtered by Nebuchadnezzar. And so that's just a continuation of that. And then he also had another um, opponent. Who was um, someone who came up against him who was a guy named Rezin, R-E-Z-O-N. And Rezin was the descendants of a, a people group that David slaughtered. And so he has somehow escaped and was a descendant of them. And so now that David is gone and Solomon is king, he comes back against Israel again. So they had those two adversaries um, that Scripture says were a direct... Result of Solomon having turned away from God, but there's a more significant adversary um, than those two, who who is actually an Israelite himself. Um, he comes from the people of Israel, and his name is Jeroboam. And Jeroboam uh, apparently was a righteous man. He was an Ephraimite, which is significant. You remember that Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and both of them had tribes of the 12 tribes. That's how you get the 12th tribe when you've got the Levites who get no land. Um, that Ephra- Joseph really was two in Ephraim and Manasseh, both of them receiving land. So it's, it's significant that Jeroboam comes from Ephraim. And we'll see that when we get back over to Ezekiel, that you, you'll read the language and it seems a little bit strange if you don't understand that, Ephraim, that Jeroboam was a descendant of Ephraim. Now, Jeroboam was a, a soldier and a a valiant one, um, so much so that Solomon put him in charge of all the forced labor that Jerusalem used. So, you know, we've read that before, that there were some people groups that they didn't destroy that stayed in Jerusalem, and they became the slaves of the Israelites. Well, Jeroboam was put in charge over all those people. So a trusted man by Solomon to start with, but then one day, um, and you might want to look at this, over in 1 Kings um, chapter 11, There, um, there is a, um, I guess he's a priest. We're not really told exactly who he is, but you'll see in 1 Kings 11, in verse 26 because this is where the split really happens and I want us to understand why the split in the Israelite kingdom happened because it's not the way that I think about it I hope it's the way that you think about it but it's not what I had previously really read explicitly so 1 Kings 11 in verse 26 it says then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeradiah, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zerah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. All right, now that's something you don't do. You don't rebel against the king, because as we saw previously, even if you're his brother, he'll have you put to death. But nevertheless, Zeroboam did, and here's why Zeroboam did down, skip a few verses down in verse 29. It came about at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahajai, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahajai had clothed himself with a new cloak and both of them were alone in the field. Right, then you'll notice what he says. Then Ahajai took hold ...of the new cloak which was on him, and tore it into twelve pieces. He said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and give you ten tribes. But he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. So when you think about the division of the Israelite kingdom, it's not because they didn't like each other. It's not because they didn't get along with each other. It's because God was pronouncing judgment on them. Because you notice that this priest speaks the word of the Lord that God says, I will tear the kingdom from Solomon and give Jeroboam 10 tribes and Solomon just two. Now, um, so you go on, and Solomon, it doesn't happen during Solomon's life. And repeatedly, the Lord says, For the sake of David, my servant, I won't destroy Solomon's kingdom. So, all throughout his kingdom, although it's troubled, here with Jeroboam, it, the kingdom does not divide in two. When Solomon dies, Rehoboam, his son, becomes king. And that's where the division begins. Rehoboam and um, Jeroboam don't get along with one another at all. So much so that they split And Jeroboam has been given this prophecy. And so he goes to the north, which is where the northern kingdom is formed. Now, the two factions are about to come and fight with one another. There's going to be a war between the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes. The southern two tribes are Judah and Benjamin. All the other tribes are to the north and in the kingdom of Jeroboam. So they get ready to fight with one another, but the, but God stops the fight. And you can see it in 1 Kings 12, in verse 24. And again, we get this reason why the kingdom was split. So in verse 24, they're about to come and fight with one another. And, and then... Um, I'm trying to remember who brought this. Oh, Shemaiah. You see it in verse 22. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying... And then verse 24 is what he says. Thus says the Lord, You must not go up and fight against your relatives, the sons of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing has come from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord, And returned and went their way according to the word of the Lord. So it's important to understand that the reason that the Israelites split into two kingdoms, and God says it very clearly this thing is from me. So the split of the Israelites into a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah was according to the ordination of God. It wasn't because they couldn't get along with each other. That's true. God used men to cause the split, but nevertheless, you see it stated twice in Scripture that it's God who divided the kingdom, not people. And that's very, very significant because if you think about it, in the plan of God, For there to be one God over one nation, then some reconciliation must take place in the millennial kingdom. If it doesn't, then you still have two kingdoms who oppose one another in the millennial kingdom. And that can't happen. Because there's peace on all the earth in a relative sense. I mean, in Israel, it is true peace. In the rest of the world, it is ruled by an iron rod. Right, righteousness ruling over evil men, but yet there's no wars. And in Israel, there's true peace where everybody gets along. All the the 12 tribes get along with one another. They come back together. And that's the prophecy that we're going to look at in Ezekiel 37 this morning. But it's very important that we understand that the reason there needs to be a reuniting of Israel is because God divided the kingdom. It's not just the way it happened or the way that men wanted it to happen. It's by the sovereign plan of God that Israel divides. So that, I believe, he can do what he does here in Ezekiel 37. Because this will be Another one of those things that amazes the whole world at what has happened to Israel. Because it's not escaped anybody's no, uh, notice that Israel was divided into two kingdoms. And that when Jesus Christ came, he didn't come to all the kingdoms. He came to the southern kingdom that was still somewhat intact um, You know, after Nebuchadnezzar captures them. Then the Persians allow them to go back to their land. They rebuild the temple. That's the temple um, that is destroyed in 70 AD, although it had been expanded by Nero. Nevertheless, it's the same temple. And so for those 400 years of silence, they exist. You can read about it in the book of the Maccabeans. It's probably the best resource, just a historic resource, not... Uh, an authoritative resource like Scripture is, but we have no statements about those 400 years out of Scripture. So you can go to the Maccabees and read about what happened in the kingdom. And there are other historical documents you can read also. Um, Josephus has um, uh, um, a pretty good history of it. So do several other writers um, so you can read about that history, but the kingdom was intact to a degree, under rule by other people most of the time, but nevertheless, I mean, they were pretty good under the Maccabeans, and then they came under the rule of Rome in the uh, first century BC. So, um, but that kingdom still existed, in Judah is the kingdom that exists when Jesus Christ comes, that is ultimately destroyed in 70 AD. And then you have no more Israelites until, what, 1947, when you see Israel all of a sudden reappear. So um, we want to go back over to Ezekiel now. Now that you have that understanding that it's God who divided the kingdom... Um, really during the reign of Solomon because Solomon turned away from God. And at that point is when, you know, I mean, it's pretty pitiful for all the judges throughout that whole period. You get to the end and then the Israelites want a king because everybody else has a king, right? I mean, that's basically what they say. And God relents and gives them Saul, who is a terrible king. And then you have David, who replaces Saul, and is a good king, and expands the kingdom, and defeats many countries, so much so that God says, no, you can't build my temple, because you have blood on your hands. And so I'm going to give you the plans, but your son Solomon, who winds up being a bad king, will build the temple, before he turns bad. And so, and then they're done. They have three kings, two which are bad, one which is good, and the kingdom is done. So, you know, be careful what you want for, right? Um, Because God never intended for Israel to have a king. Um, He he wanted it to be a theocracy where he was the king. But that plan, um, God himself, had um, changed. He had. Um, it's by the ord- ordained word of God that Israel divided. I think it's helpful too, David, just as we ponder where we sit
1: in the unfolding plan of God. I was thinking about Paul in First Corinthians 10, that tells us that
0: Israel is an example for, for the, us. A specific point the church. Right. It's Mm-hmm. Right.
1: from the Lord himself, I'm going to judge you.
0: Right. And, and his own dad, I mean, King David warned him when he took the throne, when he anointed him as king. You have this long speech by David in which he warned Solomon to be faithful to God. And Solomon clearly uh, later forgot that warning and didn't heed it. Yeah. by the Lord, it's going to be by the Lord. Because if he
1: turns us over to the wantings of our heart, which is your point,
0: yeah. he had better be careful of the wantings of our heart. Yeah, you got to be careful what you want for because God may let you have it. Exactly. And that's won't always be a good thing.
1: I think
0: yeah. Yeah, we are. Okay, so back to Ezekiel 37. And I just want to read this, and it won't it's long to go through it. It better not, right? Um, in verse 15, Ezekiel thirty-seven, fifteen. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. Take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel his companions. Then join them for yourself one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. When the sons of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not declare to us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, And the tribes of Israel his companions. And I'll put them with it with the stick of Judah. And make them one stick and they will be one in my hand. The sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Say to them thus says the Lord God. Behold I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone. And I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and with their detestable things. Or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they will be my people, and I will be their God. Okay, the first thing I want to ask the Israelites, are you just that dumb? That God takes a stick with Judah on it, and he takes another one with Ephraim on it, and puts them together, and you don't know what that means? I mean, I'm like, really? How thick are you? And now you see the significance of Jeroboam being from the tribe of Ephraim. If you don't know that, when you get here, this doesn't make any sense of why he uses the name of Ephraim and not the name of the nation of Israel. Because it was Jeroboam who led the nation of Israel out of the kingdom of Judah. And so that's where the split happened and that's where God goes back to reunite them, to Ephraim and to uh, Rehoboam, really, the nation of Israel, um, Judah. He uses the name Judah because that was the tribe from which um, Solomon was from. And so that tribe, along with Benjamin and some Levites, you always got to remember that the Levites were sprinkled among all the, the tribes, that there were some Levites who were there also, but certainly not the tribe of Levi. Most of those would have been with the ten kingdoms, a few with the two southern kingdoms, Benjamin being the smallest kingdom, um, Judah being a pretty good-sized one, but Ephraim being the largest of all the kingdoms. So um, if you understand that history, then you understand what's going on here and why God takes a stick and writes on it Ephraim And he takes another stick and writes on it, Judah. And he puts the two sticks together so that they become one stick in the sight of the people. And they don't know what it means. So they ask. And then they're given the word by God through Ezekiel. But you notice that this is the Lord God who says that I am the one who is going to put the two kingdoms together. There are several things in here, I think, that are significant. Probably the greatest one is that God says in that last verse that I will cleanse them. Remember, we've already seen that pictured previously when in chapter 36 he says, I'll wash you with water. Well, now you see what it really means. He'll cleanse them of their sins. And so these people are reunited. There's no division between um, the two kingdoms anymore. They're brought back into one kingdom. And this will be such that the whole world will know about this. That they'll see these people who warred against each other, who didn't like each other, who were captured by the Assyrians, the northern tribe, and then by the Babylonians, the southern tribe, uh, dispersed throughout all the earth. You see that even still today that over half of the um, ethnic Jews who live don't live in the nation of Israel today. There are many, probably the greatest population north of Israel up into Russia and that area, but still a great number even here in the United States who are ethnic Jews. Um, And so God says, I'll bring these people at the beginning of the millennial kingdom from all the nations. So don't know if that happens during the tribulation or after the tribulation. We're not given that explicitly in Scripture. Do some of these people live through the tribulation and then God gathers them? We really don't know. Because remember, during the tribulation, these guys are not true believers. They don't believe in Jesus Christ until they see him in the sky. Then they understand. So at the end of the tribulation, the Israelites, um, God begins to do a work in their heart and change them so that they become believers. But during the tribulation, even when God hides them in the desert, those who are in Israel flee to the desert for three and a half years and God hides them and nourishes them are not true believers. You know, does something happen in their hearts during that time? Maybe Um, but we're not given that explicitly in Scripture. What we are given in Scripture is what happens in Ezekiel, where we clearly see their salvation in chapter 36. That's where we know that they've become true believers, not before that. And so God is working in the nation of Israel, even today, and he will all through the tribulation time, but they will not be culminated as a nation and true believers until the beginning of the millennial kingdom. I
1: think there's a really important application for the church, too. And I say this in light of probably what has been very prevalent for 30 years now, wouldn't you say, which is this whole notion of lordship salvation. And it's all about grace and unhitch yourself from the law and yeah. And all They shall all have one shepherd. And listen to this. Tell me we're going to unhitch ourselves from the law. He says, They shall
0: walk in my rules and be careful to obey all my statutes. Right. Uh, It's not all about grace.
1: Grace is what enables us to now obey the Lord out of love and his grace.
0: Yeah, and you'll be a little surprised if you haven't ever studied it. As we go further in Ezekiel, their sacrifices, just like there were in the old tabernacle at the very beginning, those same sacrifices are given in the statutes that we're talking about. They they have incense and altars and the same sacrifices, even a sin offering every day in the Millennial kingdom, on the altar in the temple, and you kind of like, why is that? We'll we'll read it and we'll, we'll understand it. Go ahead. I'm always looking for God's purpose and what He's doing. Right. Not on the premise that everything is under His control and nothing happens goes not His book. That's right. Mm-hmm. but the tribes of Israel, nobody would believe that. Right. Everybody thinks they're lost. Right, they're you, you're exactly right. Everybody thinks that the other ten tribes of Israel were lost forever. That's, I mean, you read the history books, that's what they'll say. I agree that they never organized and came back together, but God knows who they are, and he will gather those together.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They are, the 144... He knows where they're at, and you're right. In Revelation, you see 144,000, 12 from each tribe, that are basically witnesses for God. Um, and so he... I, I have no doubt that God knows who they are. But that's what's going to be truly impressive. Oh, right. And some of those will be the fat sheep who get called out. You know, remember we read that, the beginning of the millennial kingdom, that God takes those who are fat and they're dismissed from the kingdom because they're not true believers. Those who are and were will be in that kingdom. And so um, I just have a suspicion that when they find everything that they will find to restart the sacrifices of... Um, the new temple that is built during the tribulation time. I have a sneaking suspicion they'll find the records also of who was the son of so and so and who was the son of so and so. I think they'll find all that. And then they'll know. But today we don't know. But those records existed. They existed when uh, the temple was destroyed and everybody thinks, well, that did away with them because the temple burned. I don't think so. I think even they will know. Uh, I could be wrong. But, you know, we found so many other records that go all the way back way before that. I think we'll find those also. Well, it surely exists in God's mind. Well, yeah, God, uh, God doesn't need those written parchments in order to be able to find the people of Israel. Right? I mean, we know that. He knows that. He knows the number or any, either direction. He knows the number of hairs on your head. So he knows where they're at. By the way, he's got to resurrect them. So he clearly knows even where their ashes are. Right. Yeah, you're you're getting um, into some deep theology that basically Ephesians addresses. That before the foundations of the earth, the elect were chosen by God. Yeah, and and that is the record in the book of life. Is that a real book, or you know, don't know, right? Well, I know this: that the angel in Daniel reads from it. So (laughs) he's reading it. I mean, literally. Yeah, I mean, you can, if you go to Daniel, those three chapters, the angel is reading from the book. So um, it must exist. Right.
1: And it gets right to where it. there are sinners who are literally coming
0: into the presence of God. Right, and they have to have a sin sacrifice. Uh, Valvord is the same guy I mentioned to you last week who has a book called Major Prophecies of the Bible. That <laughs> is a fabulous book. I mean, and, and he parses it, um, I think, about as good as anybody ever has. And he goes through every major prophecy, and it's it's an astounding work. You ought to get that one. Um, and he's written other books too; they're just as good. Yeah, I mean him and some other people, right? <laughs> like, yeah. How much has cha- well, really gone for full circle twice <laughs> at that school? So. Um, so that's the prophecy, the second prophecy given in Ezekiel 37. The first one about the resurrection. The second one after the resurrection about the reuniting of the kingdom. And you have to have that in order to see the third prophecy that Andy read the first verse of, which is the Davidic kingdom reestablished. And you can't have the Davidic kingdom without having the reuniting of Israel. Because remember, David was king over all 12 tribes. And so in order to have that kingdom reestablished, you have to have this prophecy which comes before it. And that's the reuniting of the 12 tribes into one nation. Okay? So next time, Lord willing, we'll look at the Davidic kingdom, which is the third prophecy given in Ezekiel 37. Thanks for your time.